To buy a farm, to buy a good ranch that can support yourself on, I'm going to say you probably have to have around 5,000 acres where I live. That's going to be $3 million minimum. Most people have no way to come up with that cash. So the land is sold to a bigger entity, whether that be corporations from out of state or out of the country. There's a lot of discussion today about ownership of farmland. There are international parties that are trying to buy it. Uh, we see large companies that are coming and trying to buy it. Well, there was a time when Made American truly meant that. But nowadays, we need to, I think, be very careful as to who we allow in as owners of our food producing assets. We need to get serious about figuring out how to grow food on smaller acreages because if you can grow food efficiently and effectively on smaller acreages, then you can transition either through leasing or purchasing smaller amounts at a time. The ownership structure of agriculture and food production needs to change. We need to have more ownership by workers and by people who are doing the physical labor. Those are the voices of retired Republican State Senator Al Davis of Nebraska, Assistant Majority Leader Republican Senator Bill Weber of Minnesota, and rancher Ben Gotchell of Holt County, Nebraska, talking about the issues facing farmers today with access to land, the difficulty of getting on land, and the security concerns about retaining ownership of that land to entities in the United States. It's one of the issues that comes up in our film, Farm Free or Die, which we created to influence the upcoming U.S. Farm Bill, which allocates billions of dollars to food and nutrition and all kinds of agricultural priorities. I'm Roger Sorkin, and welcome to the American Resilience Podcast from the American Resilience Project, where we make films designed to influence public policy, inspire cultural change, and strengthen civilizational security. Our guest today is Naima Clark, who is the director of Nurturing Roots Farm in Seattle, Washington. She's been leasing the land with her group from a church for the last eight years. And on March 1st of this year, she was notified with very little warning that they were going to have to uh, vacate the land. This is after putting in lots of time, blood, sweat, and tears on taking a very unproductive piece of land in the middle of a city and turning it into productive farmland. We thought this would be an important story to cover, especially as we start having conversations about the upcoming farm bill for how do we address this dichotomy between the production of the majority of our food in areas where the majority of people don't live. And we saw all kinds of food security problems and supply chain problems come up with COVID. And uh, Naima and her team at Nurturing Roots are really addressing that by supplying food to densely populated areas. Only problem being now is they don't have a piece of land to, to work off of. Uh, so we thought we could highlight their situation in the hopes that Nurturing Roots Farm can actually find a more permanent piece of land and give others a sense of how, if you do live in a city, you can also become a farmer and start producing food where you live and for the people who live around you. So Naima Clark, thank you for joining us on the American Resilience Podcast. Thank you, Rogers. Good to be here. So it's pretty unique to become a farmer in a major U.S. city. I mean, it's pretty unique to just become a farmer nowadays, especially if you're not born into a farming family or you marry into a farming family. You know, as, as we know, the majority of food is produced far away from population centers, Getting that food to market, getting them to the consumer is uh, is a challenge. And uh, you are addressing that problem 
You found your way to starting and managing a farm in a major U.S. city, and it would be great to have more people follow the same route that got you to where you are. So I'd like you to tell us a little bit of how you got into this line of work, and what advice would you give to anyone else who's living in a city who wants to start a farm? Right. There was a multitude, I guess, of avenues that led me here. I was really fortunate to find the original nurturing roots plot that we were we were cultivating. I was a part of a social justice group, um, Epic, ending the prison industrial complex, and I also was volunteering with the group YUIR, Youth Undoing Institutional Racism. Um, and so there were a lot of principles around, you know, anti-racist organizing. And there was a a new youth prison that was being built in Seattle. They were redesigning it. Um, and unfortunately, it was going to be harmful to a lot of youth, um, specifically youth of color. So being able to organize with that group, we were housed on a location on a campus that was owned by a church. And through doing that organizing, the church offered a vacant lot that had overrun with Blackberry and Morning Glory and Knotweed, you name it. Um, and so they offered that space as a place for us to cultivate. And so it was a beautiful kind of relationship, I guess, in the fact that we were able to be on a space, no questions asked. We were really young, being able to, you know, cultivate a space, be a novice in the industry. You know, it's just a startup nonprofit. But yeah, being able to be on that land, we were there for eight years. And so we kind of got our feet wet, got chickens for the first time, got a pond, you know, all these different things that were like, hey, we might as well do this because this is where a habitat should be. Being able to influence more, I don't know, more habitats, especially in our city environments, it was important so young people that visit, they could get a piece of everything. We don't have a cow, but we have some some urban farming things that you can you can do at home. So that's how we got there. So when we talk about starting a farm in a city, it's not only hard to get a large plot of land in a city, but you're dealing with soil that has more contaminants. Generally, it's less fertile. There hasn't been anything growing on it for years. Um, it must have been a pretty serious undertaking for you, not just to get the land, but to get the soil to being productive. I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about that process by which you took that unproductive piece of land and turned it into something productive. Yes. So the lot, when we took it over, again, it was overgrown. So maybe five foot tall fennel, um, blackberry, you know, the Himalayan blackberries everywhere. So being able to dig out the roots, we definitely had to start a lot with restoring that space, getting junk out, you know, being able to get the weeds out, the roots of them. I mean, for us, we don't use pesticides. So it was literal <laughs> uh, blood, sweat and tears, you know, pulling those thorny bushes out. And then being able to design a place that was had a step process. You know, a lot of the work done on our land is volunteer. So we would engage community weekly to be able to turn over different spaces. Um, but majority of the, the, I guess, the food that we produce, it goes back into the, the hands or the mouths of our volunteers. So we don't actually quantify our production. I can say that we use every nook and cranny of a space. We were just about to do some vertical grows. But being able to produce on a large scale, have a free forage space for community to come in and just grab. I realize there's a craziness around, you know, weighing out things. If I want to sell a pound of something, I have to get a scale and that scale has to be registered with the government. So instead of weighing something out, what if I just handed it to someone? 
<laughs> so it takes that barrier out, you know, like all these different steps. You know, if I'm cutting lettuce, I have to get another license. But if I let someone just harvest and pick a leaf, then it's fine. So so that's, I guess, our process around our harvest. It's a lot different, you know, to quantify for us. We we kind of quantify the amount of volunteers we engage, which is over, you know, 700 per year. We designed a take-home box. So we usually engage at least 200, maybe 150, 200 folks um, by giving them free uh, seeds and starts and instruction and pots, and they go home and grow each year. So I don't know. I think the smiles are endless in the millions, um, in the heartfelt tears that are shared, you know, those can go on forever. So to us, I kind of evaluate, I guess, our harvest a little bit different at Nurturing Roots. So you started Nurturing Roots eight years ago. It was going well. And this year you find out that your lease isn't going to be renewed. This after you put in so much time making the land fertile and productive, as you just described. And tell us a little bit about what's it like to have that land just taken away from you, even though you've been producing on it for so long. You know, my story is similar to so many. At our location, we had a lease that unfortunately we were taken advantage on. There was um, a section that mentioned Mm -hmm. if we want to renew our lease, we need to let folks know not, uh, three months prior. And so the church claims that we didn't let them know this time, three months prior, that we wanted to extend. When in the past, we've extended after our lease concluded, we've had verbal, hey, I'll let you know when I have a new lease ready for you, then you can sign on the line. So it was a very loose agreement, usually. And so for eight years, we assumed that we would have the opportunity again to just resign. Um, we'd had a lot of verbal agreements also by the landowner that, hey, if you guys fundraise enough, you guys could purchase this space. So keep on developing, keep taking those weeds out. There was even a year that they mentioned we would be charged 5,000 more a year if we didn't, uh, I guess, get eradicate all the weeds. So getting all the weeds cleared out, keeping it maintained, we would be in charge of or responsible for an extra fee. And so instead, of course, we created a terraced garden and put a greenhouse in. So um, throughout the history there, we continued developing and we finally achieved um, the dollar amount we thought would be enough to be able to acquire. And we made the offer with a real estate agent and they said the land wasn't for sale. And so that was a year ago around this time. So unfortunately... With that news, we knew that we wouldn't be able to buy it, or as far as we knew, at that moment, they were saying no. And so we didn't know if they were wanted to counteroffer or, you know, how we would be able to be considered again for actually, you know, acquiring what we developed for so long. And, um, yeah, in March of this year, we got a letter and they said that, unfortunately, they weren't going to renew our lease and we didn't let them know three months prior. And so it was... A blow to me because I'm thinking, okay, well, at least we could continue this lease. Maybe it's a long term, but we can figure out what we're going to do. It's not going to be at the beginning of the season. You know, we're not going to have to totally restructure. And so that was pretty much um, where we were in March. And so being on the land, it was amazing. Like I said, it was a slow process, but we were able to cultivate so much. I mean, eradicating things that had been there 30 years, looking at the parcel viewers, sometimes it's like, we really did transform that space. Um, but unfortunately, because of the lease and them being unwilling to renew, we had to vacate. 
And so a lot of community has rallied. We've had over 300 folks show up. The church, the pastor there, unfortunately, she's declined statements. She's mentioned a few things that are just untruthful. Nurturing Roots was subsidized rent. And it's like, you, you told us what the rent was. We paid it. If it ever was something more, I would have loved to pay it. But also we were leasing, you know, half of the time we're leasing is a pandemic. You know, a lot of folks aren't paying rent at all. So for me, it was unfortunate to see the kind of depths that she dove um, to be able to articulate, you know, the the care that she put into the relationship. It, there was a really lack thereof. And so for me, um, it was really harmful to so many people. To, so to see a lot of folks rally around it, um, it didn't persuade her, but it did kind of reevaluate our need in community. It inspired a lot more folks to say, hey, we need to do something about this. Um, and so we are currently looking for a new location in Seattle. We do still have the funding. So fortunately, we're just seeking a space that's comparable, but also is without toxins. And, you know, we built that soil for eight years. That's, you know, the biggest thing for me. I can't take the soil with us. You know, there's a there's a wealth of investment, you know, and memories that I'll never be able to pick up. And because of that, you know, they made a decision to kind of displace so many folks, so many programs um, and connections. Um, since we've been evicted or in the process of eviction, two of the other campus partners, Got Green and Rainier Valley Leadership Preschool, they also have withheld rent and said that they were um, in support of Nurturing Roots staying on campus. We do a lot of field trips with them and, you know, a lot of environmental um different rallies and supports. So being able to have allyship also, like we've seen so many folks kind of stand up to it in our community. But yeah, I think all in all, it's unfortunate that a lot of folks aren't educated enough and don't see how important structures like this are. We have enough, you know, grocery stores out there that are pouring poison into the neighborhood. So where do we have a sustainable space that, you know, has is accessible to all? So for anybody who's determined to start farming in an urban area or anywhere where the land has been fallow or misused or just difficult to turn into productive farmland, can you talk a little bit about some of the environmental challenges that are particular to urban farming and how you overcame them? Man, um, it was a journey. Our our soil um, or our plot of land, as when we received it, it had an overgrowth but also we're down a corridor of I-5, which is our main highway. And unfortunately, about, I don't know, 40 miles south of us, there was a smelt factory and it left a plume all the way down the corridor. And so of course, because we're in that stream, it dropped on all of our soil. So they say, don't even walk in your house um, after walking outside in that Beacon Hill area. And so when we got on the land, it was all about, okay, how do we restore this and use a practice that is more based on, you know, indigenous practices, you know, not adding more of a, a substance to the ground and hoping that it counteracts this thing, but really how was it going to work if we weren't here? And so for us, it was depositing more um, plant matter. It was being able to, you know, lift up. We wanted to build a layer that we at least had a buffer so that it could restore itself. So for us, we did a bunch of burlap sacks um, and then we put about two feet of 
compost, um, plant matter. We put probiotics, mushrooms, you name it, all kind of things in. And then we added a little, little bit of um, peat moss. And for us, it was building the soil up. And then we, um, after a while, we dug deeper and all of the lining of the burlap was there. We took those out, but we could see that we could dig now down into it. And so for us, being able to dig higher, also bringing all the manure and aggregates and amendments in and being able to restore, you know, we use biochar, we've done um, bakashi compost, like you name it. We have big worm bins that we deposit a lot of the castings. So for us, it really was trying to kind of speed up the process by bringing in things, um, but being able to, yeah, let most of our produce die out and go back into the land. A lot of times we would just throw compost on top of our spent cabbage and let that get back in. Um, and where folks wouldn't harvest it, we saw it was a nutrient base. So we do a lot of crop rotation. Um, we love to release a lot of the worms. We have an overwhelming amount in our worm bins. So being able to put those back in every scoop of that soil, you got huge earthworms. And so, yeah, being able to have a lot of neighbors that contribute. You know, we had a farmer that brought us a bunch of sheep manure. And so we talked to the city and we fortunately were able to get big, big, um, maybe 30 yard piles of compost. And so being able to put that back in and then also, hey, we have a chef over here who's not using their produce. Let's give some to our chickens and then give that to the land. So all of those different methods, you know, watering with our pond water, you name it, like we tried and, and did everything. Somebody had some rabbit poop, a producer had hops, spent hops after their beer production. Um, we've added everything into the soil. So being able to, you know, enrich it with organic matter and, um, you know, using a lot of byproducts from industries, I could say, a lot of big blocks of uh, the substrate for mushroom, mushroom grows. We were working a lot with, you know, grabbing all the stuff. Um, in, in Seattle, you also can't use your soil again from marijuana grows. You only can use them once and then you have to throw it away. And so for us, it's like, well, where's the organic producer that we can have all their soil? So a lot of that's in there, too. Um, Zudu compost. We get stuff from the zoo, all their herbivore waste. You know, there were thousands of people that that poured into that land. So there was so much earthwork that was done, but also heart work that poured in. But, yeah, I would say to people that are looking for land, you know, make sure that you have the ownership. You have the understanding of what, you know, those legalities are behind your, your space. So usually when someone gets evicted, or in, in your case, the lease wasn't renewed, usually tenants don't leave behind many assets that the landlord can put to good use. Usually the landlord, more often than not, has to spend money to clean up after a tenant. But in your case, you actually left arguably a lasting value that boosted the value of the property. You actually worked so hard to make that land and that soil productive. So how might you actually quantify the value that you and your team brought to that land and, and increasing really for the, the landlord as they now turn around and rent it to somebody else, they now have more, a, a more valuable piece of property? Oh my goodness, it's, <laughs> you can't even quantify it. Um... Someone was trying to ask me even, so what is the value of everything that was that you're having to leave behind? And I'm thinking, how do I tell this person the value of all this soil um, and the waste in the industry that's gone into it? So to me, um, 
it's it's amazing being able to reach out like I work a lot with farmers. Um, and so, of course, being able to be in touch with folks that are growing mushrooms was fantastic. And they spend a lot of money having to throw things away. Um, so for them, having someone pick up something and them being free of the delivery, all of these, you know, different requirements and it going back into the land and some of those um, some of the substrate being able to reproduce or re-inoculate for a community. And now they can take, you know, shiitake mushrooms home or some oysters. I just got Zudu from um, um, Woodland Park Zoo. So being able to go grab the herbivore waste, we know where it came from. We were there with a group of kids. And then we put it into this soil and you see this plot of land growing and harvesting so much better and seeing you know the nutrients in the plants and then tasting it it's like i don't know being able to have that whole process and some of it now we put back into the soil now our climate's changing we only had a week to grab our cherries you know we only had this window of time to see our tomatoes ripen i think all of those processes you have to be in it and engaged and so um yeah the process of not only eating it being able to see where your waste goes um, and seeing where it's more valuable if it can get into this loop. Um, yeah, it's it's priceless. So again, I come back to this paradox where we produce the majority of food in areas where the majority of people don't live. And it seems like you're in a unique position to really help bridge that divide, maybe join forces with rural communities and farmers uh, that are doing monoculture in rural areas so that they can learn from you and you can learn from them maybe help address some of the, the food supply and food security issues that we're talking about, and maybe even bring some of your methodology to help them wean themselves off of a monoculture production model. So, of course, I've run into some big-time farmers, <laughs> some maybe 100-acre farmers at some of these conferences, and they're like, I just look at you as a gardener. And I'm like, well, I look at you as like a mono <laughs> monoculture specialist. Like, to me... Um, yeah, I've definitely ran into, well, how can you do that? I've filled out, you know, documents and said where the farm is. And they're like, but that's in Seattle. That's in, <laughs> there's a farm in Beacon Hill. It's like, yeah. Um, and so being able to show folks on our scale what you can do, I think it's impacted even some of those big time farmers to have more of a diversity of crops and realizing, oh, okay, well, chickens aren't so hard. I guess I could put a coop there and, you know, I could use some of their waste or, oh, rabbits are like that. You know, that's easy enough. Or I've got rabbits here. You'll take my waste. So realizing that, hey, you big farmers, if you'd like to support us, we can support each other. But also as an urban farmer, it's I'm a lot closer to, you know, the engagements or the community that we want to serve. I've got to figure out in this city how more roofs can be designed to withstand the weight of a garden because we need to have food that's accessible to us. If we live in an apartment building, you don't have a yard, you got to know how to go upstairs and do this thing. And we got to allow that to happen. And so we've run into issues around weather. You know, there was a storm that came through. They called it Snowmageddon a couple years ago, and it blocked the pass. So we, no farmers east of the mountains could get over. And so our stores were running out of produce. You saw where folks, you know, the shelves were empty. And so we got an influx of folks that were like, do you have, you know, collard greens? We're looking for some. And it's towards the holidays. Folks really needed them. And so being able to have those and have them accessible, being able to have a smaller size in the city, we often don't get hit with, you know, those big 
recalls, you know, and it, and it, and it goes to show you the value of having these smaller ecosystems, um, these urban environments that can not only source, but educate themselves, um, that can self-sustain on a smaller, smaller scale, because that in fact will show you, Hey, when you're producing and you know, the farmer, then I don't know, it just feels a lot better. (laughs) but also it's a lot healthier for you. We all have to embrace that we're doing this together. You know, COVID showed us that. And so being in a city and being able to be connected to your community and in this way, it definitely is super impactful. And so we have to do the best we can in these little spaces, but also being able to grow food that's next to you, that you have a relationship with. You get that harmony and it's, it's like that. It's like, okay, kids learn it. All of us can educate ourselves and absorb it. So the Farm Bill is coming up. Uh, It's, again, one of the big reasons we're having this conversation right now. We're trying to educate people about the Farm Bill, how it's going to allocate billions of dollars, our tax dollars. We want it to be spent on these priorities, on regenerative agriculture, on producing food where people live, and also calling for ways to help people to get on land and start becoming farmers, giving them pathways to careers in farming. It's not something we see a lot in suburban and urban high schools Guidance counselors aren't directing people to careers in farming or going to colleges with agricultural science programs. I assume that's something you would like to see more of in the Farm Bill. What else would you like to see as priorities in the upcoming Farm Bill? Man, I would love to see more funding. Um, Yeah, like you said, more careers for sure for youth. I I see that as more education opportunities. In Seattle, um, and I'm not sure if the neighboring cities, it's similar, but we don't have home ec classes anymore. They're not investing time in that, you know, to teach us how to care for ourselves. And so although all these other subjects are important, more money into the educational principles that we need to thrive. Um, I want um, there to be more support for urban farms. Um, So if there's projects that are designed around incorporating education, incorporating access, and then this reciprocal kind of recycle idea of how much are you evaluating that regenerative practice in your institution or your project or your model, your baseline, um, there's a lot of, um, you know, money that goes into industries that can evaluate how much money you're going to put in. How much money can you make? Okay, you're eligible for this dollar amount. Um, But yeah, getting legislation that kind of articulates a different theory, like a different value system is what I hope for. Um, uh, More that's designed around, you know, there being exclusion of folks that are using, you know, harmful, harmful toxins, toxic, excuse me, substances like that can't be the principle anymore. Um, And so, yeah, I would love to see that there's more funding for small-time farmers. Um, There's more acknowledgement to faulty loans that went out. You know, there's a lot of farmers that are in jeopardy of still losing their land or still not being able to produce. So I'd say, for example, farmers like me that really would love to have a large pocket of land that have not had access to it for generations. Um, Generationally, there are a set of folks that have been afforded the 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 joy of being able to own land or have it passed down for generations. I think there's a big changeover right now where there's a legacy of farmers or farm families that no longer want to be in agriculture at all. 
And there's a lot of folks that are saying, hey, I would love it. I see the joy in it. I see a regenerative practice that I can instill. You know, I want to do this thing. I can make value of that land. Um, And then there's a big developer that says, actually, I've got way more than she does and can snatch it up. And so when I think about the access, there is a big changeover. A lot of farmers are at that age where it's like almost, I don't know, these different periods of time where a lot of those farmers are plateauing. And so being able to come in where there's a vacancy is very important. And having access to cash and funds to do that, I think, is super valuable. And so what kind of a legacy would make you proud to know that you're leaving through the work that you're doing in terms of taking care of land and feeding people? You know, I do a lot of this work for the fulfillment of when I pass on. You know, a lot of what I've run into just being a black woman farmer in an urban environment is you can't do that. You know, in every facet of you can't, I probably have seen. And so, you know, I think the legacy I want to leave is not only, you know, believing in yourself, being able to persevere, but also this value of, I think about, you know, being able to leave a legacy of abundance. Our farm right now, we have free foraging and folks come year round to grab things. There's still things there that I had to leave behind. And, you know, people can't fathom the idea that you could give things out for free and it never run out. It's like, yeah, we don't actually have to. There's more than enough land on this earth to be able to produce enough food for no one to go hungry. You know, there should be no one without access to healthy food. There should be absolutely no one with access to unhealthy water. All these things can happen. And so when I think about what I'm leaving for folks, it really is like, you know, um, I live a lot by this pay it forward idea too, you know, being able to offer something to someone and now they share something with someone and then that keeps on going. And whatever I'm offering, it's got to be some good something that's going to be supporting You know, we can't keep putting bad energy out. And so, um, yeah, I get emotional even thinking of that because this inevitable thing happens to all of us. And I hope that, you know, this this energy that I'm putting forward for my life, it's worth something. You know, I hope that it can snowball into something. And I see where, you know, there have been ancestors or inspirational figures in my life that have definitely you know, gave me that nutrients, gave me that nitrogen to make me that much stronger, you know? And so I definitely just see where, you know, I want that to be the legacy that I leave. You know, I want folks to feel something different. I want them to evaluate the conditions. Um, yeah. And just, you know, make the most out of that time that we have. So finally, this idea of becoming a farmer and even becoming a farmer in a city It seems daunting. Not everybody who's interested in helping create food production in a city is going to actually become a farmer and do this 24-7 the way you have. But how can people get involved with urban agriculture, either with Nurturing Roots or other organizations wherever they might live? There are things you can do, you know, in community. There are organizations you can support. Nurturing Roots in Seattle is Um, Like I said, all about this process of restoring, but also, you know, taking out a lot of these figments of, you know, the institutional imaginations that we're enchanted with from from a young age. You know, we don't have to live in the ways that we're used to. 
Um, and so support nurturing roots, look out to more organizations that are doing small work, but large scale, um, I guess, theories and ideas, you know, um, nurturing roots is online at nurturingrootsfarm.org, uh, and on Instagram, nurturing roots farm, um, Check us out. We're looking for new land right now. So I'm I'm fortunate to be able to have a community, a team at Nurturing Roots that has been diligently looking for space. Um, we've worked on rehousing to a temporary location. All of our perennials and our chickens and our pond and our fish community mm-hmm. have really reached out to help support, you know, holding on to them for us. And so we're just excited to find our new location. But definitely check us out. Come stop by when we find our new location. Well, Naima Clark of Nurturing Roots Farm in Seattle, thank you so much for joining us today. It's so inspiring, and we really hope that yours can be a model for people all over the country, cities, suburbs, and rural areas to really rethink the way we produce our food. Thank you so much, Roger. I appreciate your time and your energy doing the work that you do, for sure. You've been listening to the American Resilience Podcast from American Resilience Project. Be sure to visit us online at amresproject.org, that's A-M-R-E-S project.org, where you can sign up for our mailing list, you can watch all of our films for free, and learn more about getting involved in a number of different issues, from the energy transition to coastal resilience to food security. This program is available on all major podcast platforms, and please do leave us a review. Today's show is produced by American Resilience Project with editing help from Joseph Skinner and music by the great John Cabon. For all of us at American Resilience Project, thank you for listening and supporting us because civilization deserves a fighting chance.